Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast covering documentary film. I'm your host, Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and the Stranger Than Fiction screening series that takes place on Tuesday nights at New York's IFC Center. On this episode, I interview the Syrian filmmaker Orwa Nirabia, who's the co-founder of the nonprofit DocsBox, dedicated to supporting Arab documentary. His producing credits include the film Return to Homs, that captures a key period of resistance near the start of Syria's civil war. It won the 2014 Sundance World Documentary Jury Prize and is now playing on Netflix. Here's Orwa discussing the film on 60 Minutes. You know, for a young man in the siege of Homs or the siege of Derizor or these really very difficult uh, places, the only way you can, is you can be forgiven for not holding a gun is if you have a camera. All fighters respect your choice if you're fighting with a camera, which is something very new to our society. We never liked cameras. We never liked to be filmed. Suddenly now we want to film and to be filmed and to tell the world and to communicate our opinion. Before Syria's revolution, Orwa was based in Damascus. He started Docsbox with his wife, Diana El Jaroudi, as a film festival that gave inspiration to a new generation of directors. As street protests were rising in spring 2011, he organized an open letter of protest co-signed by Syrian and international filmmakers. I'll quote one paragraph. We call on all filmmakers in the world to contribute to stopping the killing by exposing and denouncing it, and by announcing their solidarity with the Syrian people and with their dreams of justice, equality, and freedom. End quote. In late summer of 2012, Orwa disappeared. He was held in custody by Syrian security forces. His partner Diana organized a campaign to release him. Statements from prominent filmmakers were compiled in this video. I'm Michelle Rodriguez from the United States. I'm an actress. This is a plea to free Orwa. American actor Robert De Niro, free Orwa. Morgan Spurlock, American filmmaker, free Orwa. Judd Apatow, American director, free Orwa. Michael Apted, English-American director, free Orwa. Iranian filmmaker, Mohsen Mahmalbaf, free Orwa. Ken Burns, American documentary filmmaker, free Orwa. The campaign succeeded in getting Orwa freed after three weeks. He and Diana relocated first to Cairo and now in Berlin to reinvent DocsBox as a resource for Arab documentary. I met with Orwa last week at the Sundance Film Festival, where he was attending workshops for international filmmakers. It was day five of the Trump administration. We weren't yet anticipating the Muslim travel ban. Had it been enacted earlier, it might have prevented Orwa's trip. I started our conversation by asking Orwa to take me back before the war when he and Diana started Docsbox in Syria. He took a long pause, as if looking back to 2008 required a concentrated effort. Then after a deep breath, he began. 
it was a time in contemporary Syrian history where we were all very optimistic. We thought that the regime was going to be a bit more open culturally. It was uh, the UNESCO's uh, year when Damascus was considered the cultural capital of the Arab world. Uh, what meant that the uh, regime, the authorities, were very keen on showing the world a better face through culture. And we believed that that would be a good entry point, that uh, a proposition like starting an independent documentary film festival would have usually been just rejected. Mm. But when they had this year and they wanted to create as many cultural events as they uh, could, we thought it would be a good negotiation point. Syrian filmmaking at the time was uh, absolutely uh, monopolized by by the uh, uh, government. So it was mostly fiction. Fiction was produced and funded completely by the Ministry of Culture. Um, Although most of the films were actually dissident films, were critical to the uh, regime, but still the regime funded them, produced them, and then banned them. And that was a very, uh, a very particular uh, situation. But f- documentary film was rare, was very little. Uh, we had a great master, Omar Amir Alai, who was inspiring to a whole generation, including me and Diana, my, my partner. And we saw his film, watched his films, and wanted to make documentary hmm. films. And what were his films like? His films were very genuine uh, creative documentaries in the sense that he uh, traveled the world, worked mainly in Syria and Lebanon, made films in the 80s about the Syrian, uh, the Lebanese civil war, and in the 70s in Syria about the rise of Assad and his uh, junta to power. And uh, then later on, he kept on studying the the anatomy of a society corrupted by by power. Uh, he also made films in um, as far as uh, Pakistan. He made a film about Benazir Bhutto when she was the uh, prime minister of Pakistan. He worked in Kuwait, in Yemen, in France. He documented or worked, made some very good films about the uh, early wave of terrorist attacks in Europe in the 80s. And was he doing this while being based in Syria or somewhere else? No, he was based in Syria until the end of the 70s when he became an exile and went to France and then only came back um, end of 90s to Syria. He was allowed to go back home. Um, So he he was influential, I must say, in the way we understood what documentary is. To understand that documentary is not just this cheap kind of film that you start by making so that you get a chance at fiction. Mm Mm-hmm that it is actually as uh, rich and and creatively challenging as fiction and that it's a real form of um, creative expression. In 2006, Orwa's partner Diana set out to make a documentary called Dolls, A Woman from Damascus, about a Syrian mother and her daughters and how their views of womanhood are affected by the Arab version of the Barbie doll named Fulla. In order to fund the film, Orwa and Diana traveled to the International Documentary Festival of Amsterdam, known as IDFA, that holds a pitching forum. Yeah, and we went to the forum to pitch the film, which was the biggest co-production pitching forum in the world. And and we were very successful and so moved. And I remember we left that pitch uh, session with a huge audience. and, uh, And Diana said, why don't we have something like that back home? And it was, so we always said it was jealousy that made us start a documentary festival in our country. (laughs) Um, 
our people did not get the chance of watching creative documentaries. It was always when you say documentary, people heard uh, nature, nature films, history films, like television standard uh, documentaries, but not filmic documentaries, not documentaries that really touch your your being, your, your existence. Uh, and we started this. We said we want to show films from around the world, translate them and travel with them to four cities in Syria. So it was not only in the capital. Um, and we always try to play a game with the authorities, with mm -hmm. censorship. So, for example, we knew we would never get a permission to show, say, for example, Amir Ali's films critical of the regime in Syria. Mm -hmm. And what we did instead was to show wonderful films from Chile, from Poland, films about other dictatorships. Mm -hmm. And it was, we used to call it parallel realities. It was our version of parallel reality. Because we knew that when you show audience a film about Pinochet, for example, in Chile, they will not leave the theater discussing the situation in Chile. They will leave the theater talking about their own life and uh, the similarity. Right. Um, and, and that was successful. I remember in the first year we had a, a headline in a newspaper saying a Don Quixote quest. And still we got, I think, 28,000 uh, admissions in the first year. Uh, so that was encouraging. Over four years, it got to 38,000, and that was um, a pleasure. It was for a, it, it was regionally the biggest one. Um, we had great guests. We did master classes, workshops for filmmakers, for beginners, and for more experienced filmmakers. We brought in many distributors and trainers. And uh, I have to say, in a short amount of time, it had established quite a reputation. It was. I'll, I'll never forgive myself for not uh, getting there, but uh, but it was something I thought was so well established that well I'll get to there one year. Yeah, we we never thought it would be stopping that fast, but uh, but yes, it was such a an honor and a pleasure to to have a a full six hundred uh, seats theater, having a Q and A with uh, um, D A Pennebaker, for example, for for an hour and then with Patricio Guzman mm. and having these very wonderful uh, encounters between great filmmakers and our audience. Um, <clears throat> that was a great experience. And then came the, the revolution and we were, um, the, the fourth and last edition of Doxbox took place, uh, closed curtains three days before the revolution started. So it was really very difficult at that time. The, the authorities were on their toes, so alerted and knowing somehow that something is coming, mm. uh, what meant that we were under a lot of scrutiny and receiving f threatening phone calls from authorities every day mm. to make sure that there are no political issues discussed in Q&As and so on. Um, but we survived it. 2012, we wanted to make the fifth edition, but it was so bad in the country. And we already saw that if we organize a festival in Syria at that time, it would have been too much of a... Um, the regime would have loved it so much. The regime would have thought this is good to show the world that nothing bad is happening. Uh, mm. And we would have been under a lot of uh, uh, control. But at the same time, we would have been immediately used as a proof mm. that nothing is happening in the country and all is good. In spring 2011, Syrians learned about an incident in the southern city of Dara, where security forces had tortured several teenagers for spray-painting anti-government graffiti. 
The news sparked peaceful demonstrations similar to the Arab Spring marches in Tunisia and Egypt. When the protests were met with government violence, Orwa helped to organize filmmakers writing an open letter to denounce the reprisals. That, that was a very uh, special, special uh, story of my life. Uh, it was a moment when, when we thought that filmmakers have a bit of uh, an immunity. Hmm. Not much, it's not full immunity, but that filmmakers cannot be easily detained and tortured like others. Hmm. And we thought that we have to immediately use this to raise our voices and say, look what's happening in this country, we shouldn't do that. And this was something that you were putting your own name to, Syrian filmmakers were putting their names to, as well as other international filmmakers. That was the idea, was was to mobilize internationally, not only locally. So uh, there was already a, a split in Syrian filmmakers. There were already some who were either scared of change or supporting the regime. And um, the majority was supporting the people in the street. And and so I think we ended up with 70 names, 70 Syrian filmmakers signing. But the way we, we uh, wrote that statement was including inviting filmmakers everywhere in the world to sign with us so that we try to raise awareness internationally. And we ended up with uh, 1,100 names, including many of the greatest uh, stars and filmmakers in the world. And that was the very first public statement of the Syrian uh, revolution turned war. Mm-hmm. And what was the reaction to it from the regime, if any? There was a reaction. There was immediately a counter uh, statement from pro-regime uh, uh, filmmakers. And, and also uh, some were, were forced and blackmailed to sign a counter statement that accused us of being uh, traitors and uh, followers of the West and even collaborating with the enemy, with Israelis. And uh, it was a big thing. It was, there was um, big headlines accusing us of treason uh, in uh, state uh, newspapers. But uh, none of us was prosecuted at the time. It seemed like the plan worked that uh, mobilizing the international film community made them already think, okay, let's criticize them, discredit them, but let's not go into um, detaining them. It showed that other people would be watching. Yeah, it's too much uh, of a spotlight. In late summer 2012, news spread that Orwa had disappeared and was likely in jail. Diana enlisted a network of international supporters. Alex Gibney's company, Jigsaw Productions, produced a short video with free Orwa statements from acclaimed filmmakers, including this message from Haskell Wexler. We have a sacred obligation to tell the truth. If you lock Orwa up, you lock me up, you lock you up. Free Orwa. I asked Orwa to explain his experience of what happened. Again, he took a long pause before answering. It was August 2012, and I was heading to Cairo to take part in a seminar on on film and and society. Uh, And 
as I was uh, getting my passport stamped at the uh, immigration booth in the airport in Damascus, uh, something came up on the computer of the employee and he had to take me inside where I was stripped of my telephone, my, my uh, luggage and so on and informed that I'm wanted for the military intelligence branch. And uh, I was taken from there to this underground facility in Damascus uh, that was uh, a terrible facility. I was uh, uh, beaten naturally, <laughs> like that's the process they take you in. Uh, and then I was put into a, a dorm that had 84 other men in, um, I don't know how it's that in feet, but it's uh, seven meters by three meters. Mm. So uh, it was this place that you could not lay down or sit. You had to stand up. It's squeezed more than anything. And uh, it's absolutely inhuman. Mm. Um, <clears throat> people were sick. There's no medical treatment. Uh, people would would be taken out for torture and returned uh, unconscious. And it was uh, a very scary experience for me. But is it safe to say that nothing in your life before that had prepared you for that? I, I must admit that I'm I, I was born into a part of serious society where many were always detained and tortured. So I've always heard stories about that. But it's amazing to see that seeing is different. Mm. <laughs> you know, you always assume that you know, but when you see it, it's different. Um, and then what was wonderful was the fact that media and friends immediately moved to the extent that the my... my uh, Your jailer? Or? My jailers were already alerted that I am somebody they should consider not to harm within the first 24 hours. Mm. Uh, I knew that in a very strange way because I was always uh, blindfolded and, and uh, handcuffed. Mm. Uh, uh, but I knew it because I heard one uh, high-ranking officer there tell them, uh, mocking me, tell them, so this is the prominent intellectual. Mm. And all I thought of, where did he get this word from? Prominent. It must be rolling on some TV, on some... Because uh, he said the word in English, prominent? or no, He said it in Arabic. But oh. why would he say it? Uh, I thought it must be on TV because that's the only way he could have picked this uh, description. So what what was important to me is that it was the, also the moment I was sure that Diana and, and my, my family and friends realized that I am in detention. Because, you know, the first thing that you think, they they will not realize I'm detained because they think I just went to Cairo and I might not call on the first day. Right. Yeah. Uh, it was a very difficult three weeks. But um, after two weeks, I think that the international campaigning that uh, Diana masterminded from Damascus with many wonderful friends, including you in Toronto at the time, uh, had such an impact because it started to... You told me there was a funny story about a jailer coming and asking you a question. Yeah, it's, it, that's when I realized that it's a big campaign outside. It was when uh, one of the jailers came to me and said to me, so where the hell do you know this De Niro guy from? <laughs> and I, I didn't realize it immediately, so I told him, I don't know the De Niro guy. And then I, he was asking me and I was thinking, wow, then it must be a big campaign. 
Um, so I told him because you, Robert De Niro had signed his name to a petition. So I asked him, so what's what's with De Niro? And he said, well, he made a three seconds video for you. Uh, I told him, do you know who De Niro is? And he said, no clue, I don't. And I started trying to remind him of movies he might have seen, and we ended up that he only have seen De Niro in The Godfather, uh, which was a very nice uh, thing, I think, that the jailer, the torturer... Would know the mafia films. <laughs> would know that film only. Um, but I, I think they were, in a way, they balanced their their interest in this and thought that I'm not worth it as a detainee, that releasing me would be better because I'm not such an important uh, leader of opposition. And on the other hand, if they keep me there, it's a big, uh, it's too loud. It was too loud. So in that sense, it's it was a great lesson to me. And I think I've, I've ever since I'm trying to keep reminding filmmakers of the great power of an international filmmakers community that nobody else at the time, it was simple. If Obama and Francois Hollande and Merkel demanding my, demanded my freedom, the regime would have never released me. Mm. It's so different. The moral and, and uh, publicity uh, power of film people pressured the regime so much more than any political or human rights pressure. And that's something I think that we should always keep in mind. We are strong when we come together and we can change things. We can make an impact. That's so interesting because sometimes when you see celebrities, people in the film world making political statements, it can be easy to dismiss. Here's a celebrity making something that seems superficial to make a statement, but from what you say, it, it really isn't. No, I don't think it is because because all uh, regimes care so much about about image, and to them, uh, political pressure does not necessarily harm their image. But celebrities who have moral moral uh, authority, like De Niro, Robert Redford, uh, Meryl Streep recently in no. in her speech at the Golden Globes, these people have a moral and ethical standing. People respect them, not only, people are not only fascinated by them, but also respect them. After a short break, we'll be back with more from Orwa Nirabia. If you're in New York City this winter, please join me on Tuesday nights for my screening series, Stranger Than Fiction, at the IFC Center. Each week, I present a new or classic documentary, followed by a conversation with the filmmakers or special guests. On February 7th, I'll present The War Show that won a prize at the Venice Film Festival. The film follows young Syrians from the heady days of peaceful revolution into their experiences of civil war and escaping the country. After the February 7th screening of The War Show, I'll moderate a Q&A with the film's Syrian producer, Allah Hassan. For more information, go to purenonfiction.net. At the time of Orwa's detention, he was deep into producing the film Return to Homs. When he got out of jail, he and Diana moved their editing to Cairo. They expected to be away from Syria for only a few weeks but they got word that Orwa was wanted again, and they never returned. For listeners who haven't seen Return to Homs, directed by Syrian filmmaker Talal Durki, I asked Orwa to describe it. 
Return to Homs was a film that um, Talal Derki proposed and, and we took on uh, to produce. Uh, it was the story of two friends in Homs. One was a young 19 years old football goalkeeper uh, who was uh, a young star, an upcoming football star, uh, and who suddenly became a leader of demonstrations. He was a great pacifist leader uh, who discovered that he can sing and started to write revolutionary songs mm -hmm. and lead the demonstrators singing. Uh, people were singing and dancing. It was so inspiring. And his friend was uh, this 22, 23 years old uh, citizen journalist following him and filming him and trying to make sense of this new reality in the country. So when Talal proposed that, we were fascinated by the two guys and we thought, okay, let's do this film, let's make it. Now, it was pretty difficult to realize the film because uh, we, uh, we thought that the story was as simple as I just said it now. <laughs> um, and we were even considering how difficult ending the film would be if the revolution was uh, successful within the coming few days as we ex anticipated at the mm. time. We never thought that it would be a war and then a huge, mm. massive proxy international mess. Now, for outsiders who don't know Homs, uh, can you describe its particular role in that revolution? Homs is my hometown. It's, this, uh, it's the third city in Syria in terms of size and population. Uh, it's a very simple, calm, and even uh, conservative city. Not conservative and over-religious, but it's not an... Uh, a very buzzing kind of a town. Uh, the population is one million, one million point one, uh, and it's it used to be a very boring city. I must admit, I had mm. to leave it uh, right after high school, and I was so happy to leave it. But then, uh, when the revolution started, um, Homs had a very special role. Homs, the s people of the city reinvented themselves somehow. Now, I don't know, in every country there is a city that people make uh, fun of, that people make jokes about. Right. Uh, I don't know what's that in... in Cleveland, maybe, in the, the US. Yeah, so it's Homs is the Cleveland of Syria. So the Homsi is the, uh, the protagonist of all the jokes in Syria. Uh -huh. And Homsis enjoy that. So in the beginning of the revolution, we used to see loads of comic uh, content being made by by average people in, in Homs, uh, making fun of the regime, making uh, even uh, creating uh, pranks to the army. And we laughed a lot and it was so moving. And then people like Sarut, the protagonist of Return to Homs, was uh, emerged and we were fascinated. It's a new kind of demonstrating. It's a demonstration in place because marching would be higher risk. So instead of marching and being open to uh, to fire, uh, people started to demonstrate in place, like take a big square, safer square, and demonstrate there. Demonstrating was all about singing and dancing. That was so energetic, so beautiful, we were all moved. So I must say I, I, I loved my hometown again because mm -hmm. of that. And going to film the uh, Return to Homs there, because uh, it was 
gradually more risky to go to Homs. So we didn't manage to convince any uh, cameraman to go and shoot the film. And that's why I ended up doing the camera work for the first half of the film uh, myself. And um, <clears throat> going there and living with these people, sharing their daily uh, experience and witnessing how they felt they had no choice but to fight back in what later on was to be considered the, the beginning of the armament of the revolution, which was something that was so painful to me watching, but at the same time, it was a popular choice. And it just, we just saw how people were forced to, to do that. When you describe that painful choice, would you have imagined that, that this could have continued as a nonviolent resistance? Yes, I must admit, at the time, I was preaching pacifism uh, continuously until a moment came that when when I preached pacifism, I felt I was literally irrelevant. Hmm. When people, normal people, working class people would be looking at me and smiling and saying, we appreciate you, we really respect you, but we've lost everyone, we've lost everything, and we're not standing back until they just kill us. We will fight back. And when on the calendar did that happen? That was gradual throughout 2012. Hmm. Throughout 2012, it was clearly a shift, spreading. A shift was taking place. Yeah, the shift would happen in one neighborhood. The other neighborhood would be still defending, advocating pacifism. Two months later, they would just submit and then start fighting back. Um, <clears throat> so to me, it doesn't change the fact that I consider myself a pacifist when I say that it was not a choice and I, uh, I do believe in popular choice. I don't believe that people, when they choose to do something, it's not just uh, anybody's right to say the people are wrong. Mm -hmm. So you wind up completing Return to Homs after you've left. Yeah, it took a year after we've left to finish the film a bit more. Uh, and it was a good experience. It was a very good experience because uh, we were truly discovering what will happen in the film. Uh, when the protagonist became a fighter, became a militia leader, and when the second protagonist was detained and disappeared until today, we still don't know where he is mm -hmm. or if he is alive or, or not. And uh, then we we uh, set up a co-production with, with a uh, German uh, company, German co-producer, and uh, that enabled us to get a wonderful editor for the film. That mm -hmm. was Anne Fabini, one of the best editors in Germany now. And uh, Anne was a very good partner. She really helped a lot. And uh, yes, I think it, it ended up as a, as a film that documented a particular side of, of the story of Syria in a, in a good way. Orwa went on to produce another film about the war called Silvered Water, Syria Self-Portrait that played at Cannes, Toronto, and other festivals in 2014. Syrian filmmakers have kept up a steady output. In contrast, during the Iraq War, we saw many American filmmakers cover the conflict, but seldom saw filmmaking by Iraqis themselves. I asked Orwa, what's different about Syria? It's two things, I think. First thing is that Iraqi film under Saddam Hussein was in a worse situation than Syrian film under Assad. Uh, so there was not a clear and, and uh, defined Iraqi film community. 
we had one. And since the spring of Damascus, early 2000, Syrian filmmakers had a political say that was considered very brave compared to, to other uh, groups or communities in the country. Uh, so we had a community that, that was inspiring to a new generation in a way. Um, on the other hand, there's the technology. Uh, when the Iraq war happened, it was the first war broadcast live on air. That was a new experience to all of us to be watching Baghdad hmm. live on air while it's being uh, under siege bo- yeah. and bombarded. The first nights of the war live on air was such a, a new experience to humanity, not only to, hmm. to Iraq. Uh, in Syria, we had mobile phones with cameras in them. We had small digital cameras. We had all of this uh, access to YouTube, to to Facebook. Facebook and YouTube were the two biggest tools of the Syrian revolution. Right. It, 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 I guess I hadn't really thought of that until you just said it, but, but like what a big jump that is from 2003 to 2013. It's the technology that enabled a young generation of telling the story immediately. Now Doxbox is established in Berlin is a nonprofit organization supporting documentary throughout the Arab world. Its website delivers educational tools for filmmakers translated in three languages, Arabic, Kurdish, and Berber. I asked Orwa, what are the notable documentary trends in the Arab world? I believe that what's new is Syria and Egypt. Um, these are the two countries that were shaken by the political uh, conditions recently. And this so surprisingly came with many new voices, many new filmmakers mm. making interesting work. Now, it can be good sometimes, bad in another time. It can be anything in that sense. But it's a wave. And I think a wave will produce quality eventually. And it is already doing that in a way. Uh, that that started in Syria, but then with the Syrian diaspora, with all of the uh, displacement of no. Syrians, it also uh, involved partnerships. So filmmakers, Syrian filmmakers, ended up all around the world and started to build partnerships wherever they uh, they uh, lived now, and this meant that they got an opportunity to make better films by learning from others and and learning from more experienced, uh, so to speak, filmmakers in other countries. And we can clearly see the result of that, the outcome of that. Now we're seeing also a wave in Egypt. It's smaller in uh, terms of number of films per year, but it is also including or or offering us some very good films every now and then. Um, These are the two countries that really brought in a change uh, in in documentary film because you can always watch Palestinian documentary or Lebanese documentary. That's I don't see a new wave. I see a continuity to the same uh, uh-huh. tradition, which is uh, sometimes which has been going on for yeah. So sometimes you see great films coming out, but there's nothing new, and the political and social context was not so changed as in Syria or Egypt. So I want to ask you about living as a Syrian in Berlin, uh, because we certainly hear a lot about tensions rising for immigrant communities in Europe. Well, the political tension is clear and obvious, and it varies a lot in Europe between a place and the other. Berlin is one of the most open uh, and and welcoming 
places in, in the continent. So uh, when you walk around Berlin, you see so much more support and kindness. Uh, you see people from all around the world. Um, and that even reflects in Berlin's own elections. It's, it's clearly a city that welcomes refugees. That doesn't apply to every other place in Germany or in Europe. But overall, we still see that Germany politically is so concerned about the rise of anti-refugee uh, sentiments, which is still the rise from very small percentage to small percentage. So it's not so big. Um, it's always interesting. Whenever the neo-Nazis in uh, Berlin have a, have a demonstration, I always go down. I will, I'm always curious to see mm -hmm. them. And uh, it's always uh, a relief to see how, how small their demonstrations are, uh -huh. how small the numbers are. And the counter demonstrations surrounding them is always 10 times bigger. So that's it, encouraging. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a it's a good city and and I think it's it's never easy. People don't understand the other immediately. It needs experience. It needs uh it, you know, it's it's a two-way uh, relationship. It it's going to take time. For my last question to Orwa, I asked how he thinks the presidency of Donald Trump will affect Syria. You know, on the evening, the very evening of, of the election, the night Trump won, Syria experienced new, bigger and more dangerous weapons being uh, used by the Russian army. It was a direct Trump impact, Trump defect on Syria. And yesterday, only yesterday, it was the very first time that we had a joint trade by U.S. Air Force and Russian Air Force on an alleged uh, ISIS uh, stronghold somewhere in Syria. So for the first time, the, Syrian, uh, the Russian intervention in Syria is fully supported by the American administration. And the Russians feel so much more courage to say that nobody else can do a political solution either. And so they are now feel the Russians feel they have a free hand in Syria and even though the Obama administration did not do much about Syria right after it left the White House we found out that it was at least putting some breaks to the Russian uh, intervention and now we see them free they're at liberty to do what they want and I do think and we're starting to feel that or to see the early signs of it, that Trump will use the very populist uh, war against terror or against ISIS to, unfortunately, hopefully not, but it seems like he's going to reach out to Assad in, in no time and to again answer the question that we hate as Syrians, which is, do you prefer military uh, dictatorship or jihadist radicalism mm -hmm. while we're trying our very best to have a third way. I want to thank Orwa Nirabia for talking to me. You can watch Return to Homs on Netflix and learn more about his work at docsbox.org. That's D-O-X-box.org. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, Series producer, Michael Scotty Jr. Sound mixer, Kyle Murphy. Web designer, Cross Strategy. Marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo. Social media master, Jordan Smith. And executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. 
I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. If you're in New York, look for me on Tuesday nights at the IFC Center for our screening series, Stranger Than Fiction. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.